This is the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. Bitcoin has shown itself relatively immune to regulatory interference. In 2019, and that's middle ages in Bitcoin terms, China's central bank started targeting crypto exchanges and warned people to stay away from digital currencies. And this in a country that accounts for 65% of all Bitcoin mining in the world. Earlier this month, China's Inner Mongolia region announced plans to ban cryptocurrency mining projects and shut down existing activity in a bid to cut down on the energy-consuming operation. In 2019, following the news that China would target crypto exchanges, Bitcoin dropped nearly 50% and then promptly recovered all of these losses and then some. In 2018, India announced a ban on cryptocurrency trades. Some other countries have various forms of restrictions on crypto exchanges, usually by denying them access to banking facilities. Taiwan and China are just two examples of this. This has led some, like hedge fund billionaire Ray Dalio, to question whether governments faced with bloated and unsustainable bond markets due to overborrowing might not someday attempt to ban Bitcoin. But experience suggests that blunt instrument will fail. Bitcoin's price and the decentralized nature of its virtual economy continues to shrug off any attempt to curtail it or shut it down. At the Blockchain Africa conference last week, we heard many speakers from Nigeria talk about how cryptos have exploded in that country. A 2020 online survey by data platform Statista found that 32% of those Nigerians who took part in the survey use cryptocurrencies. And that's the highest proportion of any country in the world. According to the BBC, Nigeria ranked in third place in crypto trades after the US and Russia in 2020, generating more than $400 million worth of transactions. Some context here might help. The Central Bank of Nigeria devalued the Naira by 24% last year, and a further devaluation, perhaps 10%, is predicted this year. In 2017, the Central Bank of Nigeria banned banks from facilitating cryptocurrency-related transactions, but the ban was largely unenforced. Now the bank has reiterated the ban and this time is carrying through with its threats and shutting down bank accounts of those trading in cryptos. On exchanges like Luno, Bitcoin often trades at a premium of 36% to the spot price available in other countries. And we're talking here about Luno, Nigeria. Joining us to explore this and other developments on the continent is Marius Reitz, Luno's Africa executive. Hi, Marius. People might find it rather unbelievable that Bitcoin at Luno, Nigeria, at times is traded at a 36% premium to the price you'd pay elsewhere. What is the premium now and why is it so high in Nigeria? Hi, Kieran. Thanks for having me on the podcast today. Yes, so the premium currently is around 50%. Did you say 50%? 50% premium. Wow. Um, so to, to unpack that a bit, um, if you convert the, the Nara price for Bitcoin in Nigeria to USD using the, the USD Nara exchange rate, and you compare the USD price in, in Nara versus the USD price in international exchanges, you will see that the price in Nigeria in USD terms is trading at a 50% premium to what you would pay on Coinbase or on Bitstamp or any of the other large international crypto exchanges. 50% is quite astonishing. Why is that? Given a couple of good reasons. I think, you know, typically, you, uh, especially in emerging markets, you see price differences between now, firstly, between local exchanges. So if we use South Africa as an example, we've got you know, a couple of exchanges here, Luno, uh, Valor, Altcoin Trader, and each exchange is its own marketplace, essentially. Um, so each exchange has its own marketplace of buyers and sellers. 
And you would, you know, usually see a you know one to two percent price difference between these local local platforms. Um, and, and you know that is because the price of Bitcoin is determined by the traders and what they're willing to to pay for it on that platform on that day. Now, so if we compare this to something you know that people may let's use for example the iPhone. You know, if you go to eBay or to Amazon, you'll probably pay slightly different prices. And that's because they've got a different supply and demand. Um, you know, on each of those platforms, on each of those you know, e-commerce platforms. But if you look at Nigeria, we've seen that premium jump over the last six to seven weeks. And the main reason for that is the central bank in Nigeria's announcement early in, in February that they are banning banks and financial institutions from uh, you know, interacting or processing payments on behalf of cryptocurrency exchanges. So the impact of that, you know, was was absolutely dramatic. And because the result of that was that customers of Lino and other cryptocurrency exchanges in the market now could no longer uh, deposit Naira onto Lino to buy Bitcoin and, and could also not withdraw their Naira from Lino and from the other platforms to, you know, to cash out or to, to move from their crypto back into the bank account. So the impact of that was, you know, a lot of customers at Fiat, Naira, selling on these exchanges. And they had to make a decision, you know, either they keep it in, in Nara, you know, and have their money depreciate, which we're seeing happening in Nigeria, um, or they buy Bitcoin, you know, with the Nara and they send it elsewhere, uh, maybe international, maybe they've got international bank accounts. So they send it elsewhere to cash out or they convert it into a stable coin, you know, or they just convert it into Bitcoin and as an asset. So that is increased the demand. And of course, you know, with fewer sellers in the market, you know, they, they had more power than normal. So there was this imbalance, or there is this imbalance in the market, and and that has had an impact on the price. But if you look at Nigeria, the market as a whole, including the FX market, you will see that they've got multiple USD rates, and and that can also be just as volatile. So you've got the 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 USD rate through 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 banks, and then you've got the parallel market through BDC operators, where you know, there's also a significant um, you know 20 30 percent premium on the price of USD in the parallel market. You know, so whether it's Bitcoin or whether it's USD rates in in Nigeria, you know, it will often vary wildly between platforms. But the challenge is, you know, very few people can actually, very few people sitting outside Nigeria and uh, can really benefit from this high premium. Because it's so difficult to move fiat money into Nigeria, and then also so difficult to move fiat out of Nigeria. And now with this ban in place, you know it's impossible for any investor or trader to move their fiat currency onto exchanges and from exchanges. Um, so yes, it's a massive premium at this point. It does beg the question: How is Luno Nigeria doing? If you've got all of these restrictions and difficulties, Kieran, Luno Nigeria was our fastest growing market before the central bank ban. Now we. We create a faster rate in terms of new account openings, and, and Nigeria also surpassed SA um, in terms of active customers. So it was really it was a thriving market for Luno, um, you know, and, and Nigeria is among the biggest you know the, the biggest users of cryptocurrency around the world. The impact of that on our customers, so, so obviously I think you know at a high level we share the central bank of Nigeria's concern for, for Nigerians, but we feel that the approach um, you know it has taken year. Does not achieve this, the, the, the objectives you know, in this instance, and we're seeing some unintended consequences. So, so firstly, you're sitting with millions of Nigerians on Luna and other platforms that are not able to to access their, their money. They're not able to withdraw their Naira back into the bank accounts. So, so that's a you know that that's a massive massive you know, problem at this stage, and 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 you know it's creating a lot of pressure you know, on banks and also pressure on the central bank to give people access to their money. Um, 
And, you know, so Sunluno naturally, you know, if there's no fear on-ramp and off-ramp, it will impact volume. So Sunluno's so volumes dropped by, you know, 70 to 80%. You know, we, we're still seeing Nigerian customers uh, trade. We're still seeing Nigerian customers using Luno savings products in Nigeria. So, so they can put their Bitcoin in a savings wallet and, and interest on that. So we're still seeing some activity. We're also seeing people still signing up. And, you know, so, so there's still a demand for Bitcoin. And you now in the market, we, we see you know, the, the impact of this ban on, on you know, centralized exchanges with fiat on and off ramps is that other forms of other types of exchanges like peer-to-peer -peer platforms um, you know, over the last couple of weeks increased customer numbers and they've increased volumes on those platforms. So you know, while there's a big impact on Luno and Luno's customers, the industry in Nigeria is continuing to thrive and you know, people will continue to find ways to buy Bitcoin Okay, I mean, we heard at the Blockchain Africa conference last week how Nigerians are finding ways around the Central Bank of Nigeria's hostility to cryptos. Many Nigerians have foreign bank accounts and they use these to purchase Bitcoin. So they might have an account in the United States and then they, they ship that money to Nigeria or to Luno and they would buy Bitcoin that way. And as you mentioned, others are trading peer-to-peer. In other words, what seems to be happening is that Nigerians are being forced into crypto adoption, whether stable coins or Bitcoin, and they're unlikely to leave that space. Have I got that right? They kind of enter into this crypto sphere and they're, gonna, they're kind of stuck in this bubble. Yes. So I think, you know, we've, we've always seen grassroots level growth, you know, especially across emerging markets. So, so and, and that is because people, uh, you know, can use Bitcoin, you know, whether it's to get a better yield. Uh, you know, on an investment, or whether it's to continue doing business, um, you know, in order to, you know, you know, and send money cross border, for example, or, or do payments using Bitcoin and save costs that way. People have continued to you know, start using Bitcoin out of their own, you know, and they've, they've, they've always you know, found ways in which they can buy and sell Bitcoin. So before exchanges, people used to buy and sell Bitcoin you know, through WhatsApp groups, through through you know, through Facebook you know, Messenger, through you know, and, and through the early days of peer-to-peer -peer platforms as well. Um, so you know, as I just said, you know, the, the impact is already there. You can already see peer-to-peer -peer platforms. You know, and, and just a, a recap: the peer-to-peer platforms don't rely on you know, a, a bank, so so that the that they connect the buyer and the seller, but the buyer and the seller move. The money directly between you know, between them, so there's no reliance on a financial institution or on a bank, uh, you know, uh, to facilitate the transaction or for funds to flow into and out of. Um, so, so, and, and by the way, we experienced this, the, the same thing in Malaysia in 2016 um, when the you know the central bank made a similar announcement. Um, you know, peer-to-peer -peer volume shot to the roof um, when the central bank banned banks from engaging with with exchanges. Um, and, and actually, you know, the, 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 the outcome there was, you know, regulation. So it was a net positive for the market. The Securities and Exchange Commission in Malaysia, you know, it took a year or two, um, but they've announced regulations and, and, and uh, they've got a thriving market in, in Malaysia at this point. So it's not all, um, you know, doom and gloom. I think there is a, you know, silver lining and, and there is, you know, some hope in Nigeria as well. But we will continue to see innovation in Nigeria. You know, so we, we're likely to see a, a Naira-backed stablecoin in the short, you know, in the near future, and some of the exchanges, you know, peer-to-peer -peer platforms will continue to grow, continue to innovate, continue to become more user-friendly. So, no, it, it won't prevent Nigerians from buying Bitcoin. Um, you know, not at all. So, just on that point, if you've got a Naira-backed stable coin, how is that going to assist you when you actually want to cash out of your cryptos? 
you know, and it's not really going to assist you, you know, in, 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 in cashing out into Nara to use, but it's going to assist traders. Um, you know, so many, many traders on, on platforms without um, other forms of stable coins, like USDC, for example, they, um, you know, they've effectively stopped trading um, or they've, they've cashed out the, 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 um, the crypto into Naira, into Naira, but they're sitting with the Naira in, in, the, in the bank account. So they can't really actively trade. So they'll probably look at trading a Bitcoin Naira stablecoin trading pair. Um, no, in, in, instead of um, in, instead of leaving the, the the local currency in 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 Nara, so it, it just presents another use case. It, it's not going to solve the problem where you know people need the Nara to pay for uh, you know school fees or to put food on the table, but it's going to enable traders you know, to continue trading. Um, and you know, so so it, it, it's not a silver bullet, um, but we've seen talks of you know, Nara stablecoin you know, being being developed in the market. It's clear that regulations are coming to cryptos, including here in South Africa, where crypto exchanges like Luna will become licensed financial providers, probably sometime in the next year or so. But there's some compelling evidence that Bitcoin specifically is relatively immune to regulatory interference. When China started targeting cryptos in 2019, the price actually dropped sharply and then rebounded and broke new records. What's your view on the issue of regulation and its likely impact on Bitcoin? It does seem that the Bitcoin network is, the, the effect is beyond any single government's control. And that's how it was intended, actually, from its birth 12 years ago. I think you know, all, and if you, look, if you look back, all disruptive new technologies encounter regulation on the path to, to mass adoption. So if you, if you think Uber, uh, with the taxi industry, or you think Airbnb with the hotel industry, uh, but but these haven't stopped these companies from you know, becoming the the, you know, the the corporations they are today. In fact, you know you can argue that regulations actually help them to get where they are today. So from a crypto perspective um, and general finance, you know I, I think trust is vital for any company that deals with your finances. Now, but in particular with crypto. Um, you know, as you know, obviously it's not widely understood yet, and, and it's still very, very early on. Um, you know, this year crypto caught the headlines last year. Um, you know, as a result of institutional investment and a couple of big names, but we've only really seen a handful of of, of you know, big investors uh, you know, entering entering the market. I think historically, you know, the industry has faced limited regulation, but but that is changing. Um, I've touched on Malaysia. Um, you know, in the U.S., we've had regulations in the form of licenses in certain states for, for quite a number of years now. And, and that is one of the main drivers, you know, and, and why these big institutions are comfortable in, 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 in investing in Bitcoin in the U.S. Because it's a regulated market. Um, you know, there's a bit more sophistication from a regulatory perspective. And these corporations feel more comfortable, uh, you know, to, to put their, you know, uh, to put their working capital, to put their funds into, into crypto. Um, you know, we've seen the FATF publish strong guidelines, um, and locally, you know, you, you've covered this quite a bit. The FSCA's intention, you know, to to bring out the licensing regime for for crypto intermediaries. But then I think also important to touch on, you know, there's this notion that the market is completely unregulated, you know, and, and that's not true. You know, in many markets, we see regulation, and we see the positive impact. So I touched on the US now. If not for regulation, there would we have seen institutional investors? No. Would we see companies like Visa and Mastercard? You know, launching crypto teams and 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 you know, uh, recently outlining the, the the crypto roadmap roadmaps for both these markets. In Malaysia, we, we're seeing a thriving market. We're seeing you know, the barrier to entry being raised, and and it's weeding out bad actors. So I think regulation is necessary, um, but it's important that 
it's designed and implemented effectively. And, and you know, we have to acknowledge, I think, that regulators don't have an easy task, you know, not by you know, a long while. So, um, but one thing, and that's what we're experiencing in Nigeria now, is you know, an outright ban on crypto creates an underground market. You know, and the result of that is lack of visibility for regulators um, you know, and a lack of protection for consumers. So our view is that we should look at an activity-based approach. You know, um, and, and, and that is exactly what the FCA is following now. So focus on the intermediaries. Um, you know, they have to protect customer information, um, for example, ID details, um, ID documents, proof of address, con consumer info. And they also have to protect assets, you know, whether it's people sending rounds to them, um, it's whether, you know, whether it's investors holding their Bitcoin, keeping their Bitcoin in a savings wallet, et cetera. So I think at the end of the day, you know, it, it's important to regulate that on-ramp and off-ramp. Um, and, you know, we've seen the impact that it can have in other markets around the world. Yeah, I was kind of referring to the Nigerian Central Bank uh, basically banning any connection there between the banks and the crypto exchanges. And you mentioned Malaysia there as well. Okay, so and, and I agree. I think that re regulation is actually going to maybe encourage a little bit more adoption, particularly from the institutional side. Can we turn now to Luno South Africa? And, and by the way, the, we talked about this 50% premium on Luno Nigeria. There's also a premium, generally speaking, on Luno South Africa. Maybe it's between 2 and 3%. It's, it's, it's very small, but people do trade that. They do find a, an arbitrage opportunity buying overseas, buying Bitcoin overseas and shipping it to Luno and selling it there. Do you still see that as a one of the drivers of your business? Yes, we do. So so I, I won't say it's a driver of, of the business, but it's definitely one use case. And that's people exploiting, taking advantage of price differences. A lot of people arbitrage between local exchanges. You know, so, so it's low margin, but high volume and people arbitraging between international platforms and Luno. So they are obviously limited um, uh, by your single discretionary allowance. So individuals can arbitrage up to 1 million rand per annum. And yeah, and it definitely, so the premium is smaller. It's, uh, it's between, I said, between 2 and 5% in a given day. Um, but yeah, it's definitely something, one of the use cases that a lot of people get introduced to crypto. So a lot of new clients, you know, through talks around the bride, that will explore, explore crypto in this way and then end up using other products. So they end up understanding how crypto send and receive works. They end up putting some of the profits in a savings wallet, for example. So now it's, a, it's an entry point for a lot of people, a lot of new investors, a lot of new speculators into the market. Right. Of course, you're talking there, you can use your discretionary allowance, which is 1 million rand per year, but you also have your foreign investment allowance if you're tax compliant of 10 million. So you actually have 11 million rand a year that you can use for that arbitrage, right? Yeah, correct. Um, you know, we, we've heard stories of a lot of people struggling to get approval, um, uh, you know, um, to, to arbitrage more than the 1 million. But that's true. You know, you have to go through the sales shoot. You have to, you know, declare your assets essentially. And, and you know, if approved, then you can send out up to a max of 11 million rand per annum. Now, if you trade at a you know, 3 or 4% profit or, or, or net profit, then you're looking at, you know, 3 or 400,000 rand per annum, um, you know, that you, can make an extra, you know, some extra money. So, so that's, you know, that's significant. That's of course, you know, uh, before tax. So right. you still have to take that into account as well. Yes, and you also run the risk that while the Bitcoin is being shipped from overseas to here, which can take an hour or two, uh, that the Bitcoin price drops and you lose your profit. And it has happened. I just want to now, Luno 
you offer Bitcoin, you offer Bitcoin Cash, you offer Ethereum, XRP, and Litecoin. Did I miss out any? Given we recently also um, added USDC, USD coin, which is a, a stable coin that's backed by the US dollar. And how's the uptake on that, on USDC? Kieran, we've seen a fairly good uptake, uh, especially in Nigeria, for, for I think for obvious reasons. People sitting with, with, with Naira in their Luna accounts, um, you know, I would now probably prefer to, to convert that into USDC, um, you know, because it's, it's potentially more, more stable, less volatile. Um, so in Nigeria, we've seen good, good uptake in South Africa as well. Um, but it's, it's still very early. You know, we can't really say, you know, with, with certainty, it's only been live for four weeks or so. But USDC, uh, along with USDT, um, you know, is one of the most popular US dollar backed stable coins around the world. Um, and, you know, it's, it's gaining popularity and, and, and also, you know, increasing adoption globally. Right. And USDT, of course, is USD Tether which is the biggest stable coin in the world. And I think what a lot of people are doing or using that for the use case there is if you made a bit of profits in Bitcoin, you can shift it straight away into USDC or USDT and just park your profits there in a stable currency or a stably backed currency. Uh, is that what you're experiencing? Is that why people are using USDC on your exchange? Correct. Um, so it's, it's traders parking the, the fiat float uh, in, in USDC. But then also across Africa, where people have still major challenges from a remittance perspective. People still, you know, lose a lot of value, um, you know, through through costs through costs going through uh, intermediaries. So in countries like Nigeria, we will, we, we will see people using USDC for payments as well because it's less volatile than the Nara. Um, it's easier to access USDC than it is to access uh, actual US dollars or currency. So, you know, it's unfortunate that we're seeing this ban now, but you know, the potential for payments in Nigeria is also you know, fairly big. Are people willing to accept USDC as a payment in Nigeria? Kieran, we, you know, I think broadly speaking, we're still in the asset phase. So most people enter the crypto markets from a speculation, you know, from an investment perspective. Um, but in certain countries like Nigeria, we're seeing the payments use case being fast-tracked. So even with Bitcoin earlier in the year in 2020, um, you know, people started using Bitcoin for local payments, for cross-border transfers um, because of a lack of hard currency. Um, so I think in Nigeria, because of necessity, the payments use case have been fast-tracked. Um, and, and, and so I think, you know, the same will happen with, with USTC. We will see more traders and more businesses starting to accept crypto um, and also in the form of USDC um, and especially people doing business across the region. So people doing business cross-border, um, you know, I think, you know, and we've seen this with Bitcoin, have turned to to, uh, to cryptocurrency because it's easier um, and believe it or not, it's also cheaper. You know? So so I think, you know, Africa is you know, going to fast track or emerging markets at large will fast track the payments use case, although it's still very early days. We don't have the network effects, so we don't have in a critical mass of people at, at this point wanting to or willing to receive payment in USDC or in, in Bitcoin. No, so so why would you know why would you then use it? So but but we're seeing the first signs that 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 you know there's there's a growing demand for it and that there's an increase in people willing to accept it. What about this idea of staking your coins? In other words, you can you can lock up your Bitcoin or your Ethereum and you can earn interest on it. And they call that staking in the crypto space. What's the take up been like for that? 
Kieran, maybe just to clarify, so so there's a slight difference between staking, or there's a difference between staking and what we offer our customers on on Luno. So with staking, you um, you know you essentially lock up your crypto for a specified amount of time, um, and you know to receive rewards for participating um, in the transaction validation process, and, and that is on a proof of stake blockchain. So that's a mouthful, and it's more technical. You know, and it's maybe too technical to really unpack now. But you now it, it's similar to crypto mining. So you you stake your crypto, um, you put it on exchange, you lock it in, um, and that. Now helps to achieve network consensus, and, and in exchange for that, we receive rewards. So Ethereum 2.0 is one example. Ethereum moved to a proof of stake um, you know, consensus mechanism, and certain platforms like Binance and, and Coinbase now offer Ethereum staking. So the returns, you know, especially specifically on Coinbase for staking your Ethereum, is around 3.5 to 7 percent. So Luno works differently. So essentially on Luno, you lend your Bitcoin to Genesis, which is Luno's lending partner. They're the largest digital asset lender in the world. And, and so on, on, on their side, they've got borrowers. So this is large institutions, um, you know, market makers, um, you know, people that believe you know, they can generate a higher return um, than the cost of borrowing. So um, so it's essentially taking you know, on crypto deposits and, and paying an interest to the depositor um, you know, from the margin that Genesis make from the crypto borrowers. So we offer three savings products, Bitcoin and Ethereum, and our yield on that is 4%. Um, and then you also offer USDC savings wallet with a 7.6% yield yield per annum. Um, so just important to note there is that you, know, you, um, you have to move your crypto into a, a separate savings wallet product. You earn interest in crypto. So on a monthly basis, um, you, know, you will receive your interest payout in Bitcoin or in Ethereum. So we've seen a good uptake. We've, you know, understandably, people are still hesitant. Um, so, you know, first they had to understand crypto and then take the first step. And now there's this concept of earning interest on your crypto. So we've seen longer term in holders, so people that have you know, signed up a couple of years ago, um, or investors, so not traders, because traders, you know, won't have instant access to the savings. So it's people with a risk appetite um, and people that's not dependent on you know the money in the short run. So people in search for better yield. And I think that's why in 2020 with lower interest rates, we saw uh, you know a, a decent uptake of this you know, in South Africa. And now at, at this point, we've got you know, more or less 50,000 active savers. So it's people you now with actively saving and earning interest there. So I think we've had a good uptake here. I wonder how long before institutions that are looking for yield start jumping on this crypto thing. You know, when you can start earning 7% on a US dollar stable coin. Of course, there are some issues there. You know, they want to make sure that you've got institutional grade custody, that the, the lending partner, in this case, Genesis, is safe. They've got all of these things that they've got to look at. But it can't be long now before people start looking at these rather attractive looking yields that you can get in the space, which brings me to my next question. And this idea that's been put out by Michael Saylor of MicroStrategy that you will never need to sell your Bitcoin. You know, his whole philosophy is you buy Bitcoin and you hold it and you hold it and, you know, for the next hundred years. If you need money or you need dollars or rands, you borrow against your Bitcoin, which you can, of course, now do in the decentralized finance space. So he's certainly not planning to sell his Bitcoin. 
he just borrowed. Uh, he, he issued a zero-coupon bond, $1 billion worth of Bitcoin. He, he converted that in, into Bitcoin. You know, you are starting to see some institutional adoption here and some corporates actually moving their treasury cash into Bitcoin. Not on a big scale, yes, yet. But do you see this as one of the big coming trends over the next couple of years? Kieran, yes. I think, you know, maybe just a, a reminder um, for our object that, you know, we, we're still very, very early into, you know, the, the crypto market. Um, you know, and, and I think we have to be honest with ourselves. I think, you know, we'd be naive to, you know, if we believe that, Every single person buying Bitcoin is doing so um, to edge against inflation. That's just not the case. Yes, you see some people and, and maybe and many institutional investors, um, you know, in the US, for example, um, taking in positions as a edge as part of a diversification strategy. In Africa, uh, you know, so it's speculation. It's people doing arbitrage trading. And yes, you have more sophisticated investors, people um, taking positions in crypto. Um, for the long run. So they don't need the cash in the short run. And it's maybe 1% to 10% allocation. The lending, borrowing rands against your, your Bitcoin or borrowing dollars against your Bitcoin, it's a new use case that's developing. You know, it's fast developing in the US. Um, it obviously gives people easier access to capital. And I think especially in Africa, you know, we can see the impact of this you know, being substantial. Um, and, and I think you know, it can lead to one of the biggest distributions of wealth across, you know, across the world. And, and Africa is unique because we're seeing a lot of first-time investors. So it's the first time to invest for many people. Um, you know, and, and the reasons you know for, for, for accessing crypto is because maybe it's easier than going through you know, a traditional investment manager. Maybe because lower limit supply, you can you can buy ten rands or a thousand naira's with crypto, and also lower interest rates across emerging markets. So people have got to access cash that they can put in. Or they're in search for better yields. So the incentives are, are, are stronger. On top of that, Africa has a young population um, with a, a median age of 18. So it's far younger than any other continent. It's you know, developed at a developing at a faster rate, um, and and there's a potential user base of young you know, Africans um, already accustomed to payment solutions with you know through the advent of mobile money. And you know we, we're also seeing, and, and the data shows that 21% of Sub-Saharan Africans now use a mobile money service. So I think this sets the scene, you know, from a, a crypto lending environment perspective. You know, they, they, we're likely to see more young Africans over the next decade getting access to crypto and buying crypto. And if you can borrow local currency uh, against your Bitcoin holdings, you know, giving people easier access to capital, you know, that is that is uh, that's a um, you know, an absolute no-brainer in some of these markets where it's very difficult for someone to walk into a bank branch, um, you know, and to just uh, apply for a loan, um, so that you can kickstart your business, so that you can, you know, yeah, start uh, start a business. So, you know, I, I think without going into too much detail here, I think it's a new use case that's developing. It's fast developing. The US is, is you know, setting the trend at this point, and I think. No, the, the the biggest impact can potentially be in emerging markets. Are you planning to introduce lending using Bitcoin or Ethereum as collateral anytime soon? Kieran, I think you know if you, from a regulatory point of view, we, we're obviously not allowed to to lend out uh, you know, any fiat currencies. Um, so no, but but again, it's a fast growing trend. Genesis, um, you know, the biggest lender in the world, they, the average first loan size um, for a first time lender is two point three million dollars. So this shows you this is pretty much an institutional game at this point, not retail retail driven. Um, and and then just to reiterate again, you know the biggest challenge at this point um, in SA and across emerging markets and globally for that matter, you know, is 
uh, easy and safe access to crypto. Uh, you know, most people still have got no idea, and 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 it's our job, you know, to go back to the basics. Um, you know, not get fixated on future use cases, but offer the basic infrastructure to people so that they can get started in a safe and easy way. All right. Okay. Last year, Luna was acquired by Digital Currency Group, and you planned, or the announcement was made, you plan to grow your customer base to one billion within ten years. That's a hugely ambitious target. Any news on that front? Turin, we, yeah, we've experienced good growth during 2020 and also the first quarter in 2021. We recently signed up our 7 millionth customer. That's um, across all our markets. Um, but 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 if we uh, um, you know, and and one million of that customers came in the last seven weeks. So we, we've you know, since the December price movement going into into this year, we've seen tremendous growth. And and SA specifically, we've we've you know, welcomed 1.2 million customers in 2020. So we've had a good year locally, but the interesting metric is more around active customers. So yes, sure, you can have customers installing the app and you know, going through the verification stage without actually transacting. Um, but the interesting study is that we've had 45% increase in active customers um, from Q4 to Q1 this year. Now, and that's a combination of um, new entrants, so, so new customers you know, buying Bitcoin for the first time, and it's longer-term investors buying the dip, so uh, you know, following the RAND cost average method, and then also speculators, of, of course. You know, when the price is volatile, we see speculators trying to take advantage of that, and obviously it's a high-risk game. Um, so yeah, we've, we've had we've had decent growth. We obviously, uh, you know, uh, for us it's a it's a long-term long-term game. We we're not building a platform or company. Um, that's you know we're building something that's independent on on the price and and I think um, you know based on growth trends we've seen over the last year or two and based on um, you know all of the, the momentum that we're seeing in the market you know whether it's from a regulatory perspective you know or whether it's from you know different spheres bit more information better information out there um, you know more infrastructure being built making it easy for investors. I think over the next 10 years, and, and we've spoken about this in the past, I think you know, our target of 1 billion customers really you know, is, is doable. Fascinating. Of those 7 million, so you just signed up your 7th million customer, how many of those are in Africa? During the vast majority. So we've got you know, roughly 4.5 to 5 million of the 7 million based in, in Africa, and that's across our three African markets. So we, we're active in SA, um, our, you know, our, our, our first market that we launched in SA back in 2013, Nigeria, which we touched on earlier, is our fastest growing market, um, and, and then also Uganda and East Africa. So, so we've also entered the East African space. Um, we've got a, uh, you know, a, a local exchange in Uganda, and similar you know, to what we're doing in SA, we're also engaging the regulators in Uganda. We're bank partners. We've got our own program there um, from educational perspective, meeting with customers. And so, you know, West Africa, East Africa, and South Africa, you know, those are the three regions that we're focusing on. And, you know, we, 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 we're on a mission to expand to new markets as well. So, um, you know, we, we, we believe that emerging markets have a lot of promise, especially Africa from a crypto perspective. And why did you choose Uganda and not Kenya? So a couple of reasons. So, so firstly, we, you know, you have to look at the demand in the local markets. Of course, you know, we see demand in Kenya as well. Kenya... Um, you know, after Eastern Nigeria and Ghana, Kenya is the fourth ranked market in Africa when it comes to, um, you know, things like Google searches for Bitcoin, comes to the level of familiarity with Bitcoin, et cetera. Um, Uganda also has a, as a, you know, a, a, a local blockchain industry. The regulators are proactive. Um, we've, we've actually met with them there. You've got more friendly banks. So it's possible for you to 
solve the problem, and that is for local people to use their local currency to buy Bitcoin. Now, so, so that is the need that we're solving. So um, Ugandans can use their local bank accounts to buy Bitcoin on Luna and begin to, to withdraw funds. Kenya has a similar situation to Nigeria at this point. So the Central Bank of Kenya took a similar stance a couple of years ago, really, actually, where they've banned banks, commercial banks, from dealing with cryptocurrency businesses. So um, uh, we, 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 we in talks with the Central Bank, we in talks with commercial banks there, and now, before we can launch the business there, we need to cross the regulatory office. So, so that's why uh, you know you you won't see any uh, any centralized exchanges actively operating and advertising in, in Kenya at this stage. So you typically see peer-to-peer platforms and you know local crypto communities flourishing in Kenya. Marius Reitz, Luna's Africa executive. We're going to leave it there. Thanks very much, Marius. Thanks, Kim. It's been a great chat. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.